Welcome to Restoration Road Online. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Hi, Restoration Road. Hi, everybody online. Uh, I'm Trevor, if you don't know who I am. Uh, I'm part of the pastoral team here. Well, the pastoral track team, that's what I meant to say. Um, I'm part of the AV team. I lead a small group. I do a bunch of stuff here. Um, and it's an honor to be able to be up here again to uh, share the word with you guys. Um, I love this church. It, it's great. Uh, we're coming up on mine and Chloe's two years of being here, which Pastor pointed out to me the other day and really just blew my mind because I feel like I walked through the door the other day. Um, and Restoration Road, it means a lot to me because when I came through those doors, it's exactly what I needed. I needed that restoration. Um, and I was able to get filled up and put back out with a restored vision of what God wants for my life. So I'm very thankful for this place and for all of you guys and for the ability to like come and be able to preach and teach. It's, it's amazing. It's something I thought I'd never do again. Um, our verses for today are 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. Uh, and I just want to go over them again just really quickly. Um, so, and I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration the Spirit and oh demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That was tricky. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. Uh, this is one of my favorite scriptures, if we put a big asterisk after it, because it used to be one of my least favorite pieces of scripture. Um there are, there are three kind of common thoughts when it comes to these verses, and that's going to be our points that coincide with that today. I like three-point sermons because they're short, sweet, and when you get to two, you know we're halfway over. Uh, but before we get into our points, I want to tell you guys a story. Um, my parents decided to homeschool me, which if you couldn't tell from two minutes of talking with me, it should be pretty evident. Uh, I did, however, attend a Lutheran school for a year. And homeschooling, is, it's really weird. It has a really weird effect on you because it saturates you with theology. Um, every class had theological thought in it. Math class had theological thought in it. You'd get math questions that were like, if Jesus has five loaves and two fish, how many people can you feed? And then you're like, do I get the right answer or do I offend God? <laughs> homeschooling is kind of like normal Christian school, but um, paranoid. Because... <laughs> We were taught to defend our faith. We were taught about martyrs. We were taught apologetics throughout grade school. Um, we were always just told, like, you're going to have to do this one day. And I'm like, I'm seven. <laughs> so when I went to this Lutheran school, uh, I had the mindset I had to defend my faith. Because if you weren't Pentecostal charismatic Christian, like the homeschooling curriculum was, you were wrong. And man, that was weird. Um, I thought Lutherans were kind of like Catholics, but they just had different robes. So I was really just messed up with my thinking. I had no idea what I was talking about, but I was trained for this. I was ready to go in there and be an apologist at the age of 10. Uh, it turns out I never had to defend my faith once because kids don't care about theology. Who knew? I did, however, have to defend my favorite thing on earth, Marvel Comics. Uh, I'm a big Marvel fan. I always have been. Uh, I grew up with the X-Men, with Spider-Man, with Hulk, Captain America. I loved it. I loved the comics, the TV shows, the toys. I loved all of it. I still do, including the toys. Um, <laughs> and there was this one student 
Uh, we'll say his name's Harold because I don't remember because it was 20 years ago. Uh, and he hated Marvel Comics. I almost think he hated Marvel Comics because I liked it. Um, he, he had this way, he thought it was really fun to just get under my skin. And he had like the most solid debating tactic I've ever met for a 10-year-old me. First, he would antagonize me with something absurd. He would come up to me and be like, hey, do you know Batman could beat the X-Men, Captain America, all the Avengers, and Hulk in a fight single-handedly with no help? I'd be like, bro, let me tell you something. And then I would take my apologetics training from homeschooling and translate to Marvel Comics. I would make a thesis. I'd come with arcs. I'd talk about characters. I'd get into TV shows. And then Harold would put out his phase two, which was the perfect debating tactic. He would look at me while I was talking, cover his ears, and go, no, 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 Batman's great. You're wrong. That was Harold's debating tactic. Um, and our debates, our debates were everything that Paul is talking about in Corinthians chapter 2. Harold was ignorant. I was overly complex. And we were both elitists when it came to our ideals. Let's get into those three parts, those three points I talked about. Point one, Paul is being very genuine in this verse to the church. He is not being ignorant. Um, in verse two, Paul states, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, the reason I say he's not being ignorant is because I've heard this verse, well, translated um, to mean, I have Jesus. I don't need theology or books. No church history for me. I mostly heard that in Bible college, which was the most concerning thing I think I've ever heard in my life. Um, and that is not what Paul is saying whatsoever. He's saying the gospel is what the church needed and is what he really wanted to preach in a way that only he could. So let's get a little backstory to Corinthians. In chapter 1 and again in chapter 3, Paul mentions someone called Apollos. Which, it's an uncommon name because he's never written anything in the Bible. So when you hear and see the name of Paulus, you're like, who's that guy? I'm glad you asked. It's quite possible he was one of the 72 disciples mentioned in Luke. Uh, Martin Luther also held to the belief that he wrote Hebrews, which I'm not going to say he did because we can't prove that. Apollos, however, was a great teacher. He was an eloquent order, uh, orator, and he was a starting member of the church, and he was ordained by God to teach to people in a way that was way beyond the way Paul taught, in a different way than Paul taught. Um, he, he could speak and philosophers would listen. For a time, Paul attempted to be like Apollos. On his first missionary journey, Paul went to Athens. This is right before he goes to Corinth. And uh, Athens is kind of like the center of the ancient world for philosophy. Uh, and he went to this place called Mars Hill, which I guess would kind of be the MIT for philosophy. The most renowned philosophers, uh, who whatever we read about and we hear about in school, went to Mars Hill. This is the place of the place. When you read about Plato, when you read about Socrates, when you read about Aristotle, this is where they were, this is where they were teaching. And Paul um, gets up on Mars Hill in front of all these Plato and Socrates wannabes, and he presents the gospel the way that Apollos would, eloquently. Big words, smooth talk, everything Paul is bad at. He is then laughed off of Mars Hill and run out of Athens. Paul got laughed at by nerds, philosophy nerds at that, the worst kind. Verse 3 states, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. I don't know about Paul for sure because we don't know his thoughts. We just know what he's writing down to the Corinthians. But I know 
how I would feel if failure like that happened. If I was on my first trip after studying for 12 years, and the first place I go, I get laughed at and told, I'm not smart enough to talk here. Paul probably walked into Corinth thinking, what if I'm not good enough? What if no one listens? What if I can't do this? What if they try to kill me? What if it's not the message? What if it's me? Fear and trembling in an anxious context. Paul's fear that it could happen again and his fears for his life. See, Paul and I have something in common. I say it every time I need to be in front of people. What if I fill in the blank? Uh, typically, it's what if I vomit? I don't know why that's where my mind goes. But my first thought of being in front of people is, oh no, I'm going to puke. Paul has a realization and he states it in verse 4. My message and my preaching were not with wise, persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Paul realizes it's not about him. It's not about the way he says it. I just completely lost myself. Anyways, it's not about him. It's not about the way he says it. God did not make Paul to sound like Apollos. God made Paul to sound like Paul, just like he made me to sound like me, and he made you to sound like you. Paul's fear is laid out from the church, but he's being genuine to who God made him. The Lord made Paul to be a monotone and boring preacher, as he made Apollos to be appointed to reach a different group of people. So let's break this down, right? This goes for all of us. We're not all called to be preachers. We're not all called to be evangelists. We're not all called to be missionaries. I am certainly not called to be a missionary. That, mm -mm. We're, not called, we're not all called to be scholars. Some of us are called by God to be nurses, to be baristas, to be electricians, to be accountants. But we've all been made to share the gospel to a specific audience, no matter what your calling is. Sometimes that audience is thousands of people and crusades and evangelism. And sometimes your audience is one person and a cup of coffee. And that one person hearing the gospel is as important as the thousands hearing it at a crusade. If the Lord made you to be a one-on-one -on -one person, then praise God. And be the light to that one person in only way you can be. When we give up trying to be like others, as Paul did with trying to be like Apollos, and when they share the gospel in a genuine way, the church will begin to see revival. I'm not a revival chaser. I'm very hesitant about that term. I've seen that word used incorrectly throughout my entire life. A real revival begins with sharing the gospel with fear and trembling, but not in the anxious context of Paul, but in a humbling one. It's when we fully grasp it is not our words that save people, but it's the power of the Spirit of God and when it comes to revival, it will come with the broken, the beaten, the dirty, and the destroyed. Because that, that is what the gospel of Christ and him crucified is all about. It's restoration to man and God. It starts with accepting with who God made us to be and coming before the Lord in fear and trembling, in a humbling way, and saying, here I am, God, send me to those you have for me. God ordained Paul and Apollos to teach and speak. In chapter 3 of Corinthians, Paul is actually going to say, like, I planted, Apollos watered, but God grew. He's saying that we need both sides. We need the eloquent evangelist, and we need the boring teacher. We need the one-on-one. -on -one. We need the people who are going to talk to one person and pray for one person. Without them, the church can't grow and it can't be built. 
although only one of these two people were canonized. And until the world ends, his words will be the ones the Lord chooses to spread the Gospels. Paul's words in verse 2 are not of ignorance, but they are a sign of genuine, of him being genuine, and an example of who we are. Paul's words, his simple, boring words, will be the ones that God uses forever, not the eloquent ones of Apollos. Point number two. The gospel is simple. The gospel is very straightforward. Christ came, he died, he rose again, and now the price of sin has been paid so that we may commune with God. I once had a professor tell me, the gospel is shallow enough for a new believer to tread in and is deep enough for a theologian to drown in. There is so much theology out there. Some of it's good, a lot of it's bad. But it's like an ever-growing tree that continues to branch out. We will never know everything there is to know about God. He is a mystery. So when it comes to preaching and sharing the gospel, the main goal isn't to show everything, it's to show the gospel. It's to be simple, like the gospel, but to be deep, like theology. Uh, have you all seen Titanic? All right, cool. So if you have, you know what an iceberg looks like. A sermon, a presentation of the gospel, evangelism, that one-on-one -on -one cup of coffee. It's kind of like an iceberg. Because on the surface, what is seen is the gospel, the good news. It's Christ and him crucified. But beneath the water is the church fathers and church history. It's the thousands of years of writings that got us to where we are today. It's the commentaries, the creeds, and confessions that we hold to. It's the 13 books and articles I skimmed through when I was writing this. There is so much besides the gospel, but it isn't different from it. It's just to support it. Because what matters is that simplicity of the gospel. On the surface, the gospel is its simple. But underneath, all the thoughts around it bolster it. In the end, all things are going to turn to dust. Words will be forgotten, pages will rot, our creeds will fade away. But in the end, all that will matter is the gospel. The words of Augustine, Luther, Josephus, and even Calvin won't save us. Only the gospel can do that. And the words they wrote are definitely beneficial, but they don't hold the key to grace that man might be saved. That's the iceberg. The boat, it's like the heart of man. When it collides with the gospel, it breaks. Hear me, church. Um, I've lost very good, very biblically solid friends because their thirst for what does this mean became much greater than their love for the gospel. They searched for the meaning of mysticism rather than Christ and him crucified. And they forgot what it meant to live a life of fear and trembling before the Lord. And it pains me to see it because I've seen it happen over and over and over. And I pray this does not befall you. May the gospel of grace in all its simple mystery always be at the forefront of your Christianity. The gospel is simple enough to penetrate the mind and deep enough to sustain it for a lifetime. It is in the simplicity of the gospel that the power of God works. So as Paul says, not by human wisdom, but by the power of God. And when we get to my third and final point, there is no elitism, or there's no room for elitism in the gospel. I want to tell all y'all about someone uh, who was the biggest elitist I ever met. And surprise, it's not Harold. When I attended Bible college, uh, I was so excited to be with people who believed like I did, who were zealous like I did, um, who loved God like I did. But honestly, some people, they were downright heralds. 
They were ignorant. They didn't want to learn. They were there to have fun. And in my freshman year, uh, we were asked to give group presentations in one class on the five theological arguments for God. Um, and after each presentation, that group would be questioned by the professor, his classmates, and upperclassmen. The professor actually had seniors come in to rail on first semester freshmen, which I think was the wildest thing I've ever seen in a classroom ever. Um, they went pretty well, except for this one that really stands out to me as I remember it, because it was, well, it, it was not good. Uh, the group got up, quoted a few scriptures, and said, all right, that's all, and tried to walk off the stage. The professor stopped them, and the questions began, and it got wild. There was deflection, there was ignorance. Someone said, look it up for yourself, it's in the Bible. And everybody's like, what the heck? Like, didn't you read it? You're supposed to tell us the answers. And then it happened. A student stood up in the back of the room, and he said, your Bible is fairy tales. I'm an atheist. Now explain your argument to me properly or leave, because you're wasting all of our time. The room got really silent. One of the kids on the stage began to tear up, and the professor dismissed the group, and we all took a break. Now, I firmly believe that everyone deserves a little grace. I, I do. At least I do now, because uh, past me didn't. Past me was a theological elitist who would outburst in class and yell at people. That outburst gave me a reputation that I wore like a badge of honor and now is a stain upon my soul. My classmates and even professors started to call me a shark. When there was theological blood in the water, I would attack. It was like Jaws, and the theme was always playing. If you didn't understand the transfiguration, it was like, dun, dun. If you didn't understand the Trinity, dun, 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 dun. You didn't take a side in Calvinism versus Arminian, -da 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 -da. shark attack, blood everywhere, people crying. I expected everyone to be like me, to be zealous, to be theological, have all the answers. When people didn't, I would tear them down and lord over them because of the wisdom I had obtained. I should have been building people up and teaching them. But I remembered Harold on the playground, and every ignorant person at my school just insulted Wolverine, and it was on. It was when I encountered the gospel of grace that my mind began to change. And it's when this verse got that asterisk after it, and it went from my least favorite verse to one of my favorite verses. Paul didn't lord over anyone, even though he had every right to. But instead, he became a servant, and he helped them grow. He simplified the gospel in order to help people find Christ, instead of complicating it to drive them away, like I was doing. I remember sitting there thinking, what have I done? I was so distressed that I stopped eating, I started fasting, and I prayed. I apologized to the people I wronged. And I was so wrong to use God as a weapon. The Lord really did a number on me. He tore me down and rebuilt me. I went from a shark to a minnow really quickly. I went from the one who was always talking to the one who never talked. I went from walking into every classroom and every situation and every church looking for a fight to with fear and trembling. Because I was afraid that I would become who I used to be. I'd be an elitist to people who needed me most. I thank God for his mercy and grace, that he changed me. They gave me a second chance, and he's allowing me to speak and teach and help. It's my favorite thing now. It used to be my favorite thing to tear people down. And now I get no more joy than watching people grow in the knowledge of the Lord. In closing, the church doesn't need elitists. It needs leaders. 
It needs genuine, simple, living in the power of God with fear and trembling leaders. Church, be who you were made to be. Preach to who God gave you to preach to. Share the gospel in its simple beauty at all times. And if it's necessary, use your words. May we all move forward in fear and trembling that God might be powerful where we lack and where our wisdom fails. Let me pray for you guys. Heavenly Father, I ask that you break our hearts, God. You show us the simple beauty of your gospel. You help us to live a genuine lifestyle that you've given us that only we can do. And Lord, I ask that you put those people that only we can reach in our paths. I thank you, Father, for your grace and mercy. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Sunday's sermon at Restoration Road. We hope it blessed you and invite you to join us for next service at 10 a.m. on Sunday. God bless.